Kevin Purcell, the pastor of High Peak Baptist Church, and this is Sermons at High Peak. A biblical scholar named George Guthrie was writing about his family living down the street from another family that they had become close friends with. Uh, Barry and Brenda were the couple that they had become close friends with, George and his wife. They had three young children, John, Drew, and Wade, and they said they became very close and began to spend a lot of time together as a family, as two families. The kids would play together. Their children were just slightly older than this other couple's family, uh, children. And uh, the husband and wife of both families, you know, enjoyed one another's company. They'd get together for meals or uh, sometimes the ladies would just have tea in the afternoon and bring the kids over for a playtime. But then something happened in 1993. Brenda, their friend from down the street, was diagnosed with liver cancer. These family and friends and uh, church members all around these two couples began praying. As you can imagine, praying for God's healing. And they all believed, it seemed, that God would send a miracle, that she would be healed in this lifetime. And, and they acted confident, like it was already a done deal. She went through treatments and she continued to deteriorate, but they just knew at some point something would happen, that God would come through for them. Her husband, Barry, was a man of very great faith. And he probably was the one that was inspiring this belief. And he was just a rock for his wife and for his children. But sadly, after many months, as you can imagine, the thing that they prayed for didn't happen the way they wanted it to happen. So when they held her funeral, Guthrie said, people gathered and they talked in the funeral about a victory, that there was a healing. But it just wasn't the kind that they had prayed for, but it was even a better healing because she was a believer and she went home to be with Jesus in heaven and they would see her again. But he said this, he said in the midst of that funeral, while they tried to put on the best face, they talked about what they knew to be true, there was still kind of an undercurrent. He said there was an emotional undercurrent that ran throughout the auditorium that day as sincere, saddened believers asked the question, God, why did you not answer our prayers? You know, a lot of us get in that state, the question. We feel like we're alone out in the middle of an island and no one else understands. Why, God? Am I going through this? Whatever that may be. It could be a situation like Brenda and her cancer. It could be some other thing that you're dealing with. It could be financial. It could be health-based. It could be a relationship that's breaking apart. Whatever it might be. Uh, the struggles of a job. Your career is in the tank. I mean, it's just all kinds of things. We all face different struggles. And in the midst of those things, we often ask the question, why God? In Sunday school, we looked at this with Job as Barb began uh, our, our study through that, looking at this question, why God? Why do these things happen? And so when we hear these things, it you know, it's, causes a lot of difficulty for us, doesn't it? Why doesn't God deal with our suffering? 
Is he not able? Yes, we believe he is. Does he not know? Yes, we believe he knows. Does he not care? Yes, we believe he does. And so Hebrews chapter 2, verses 5 through 9, have kind of like a little interlude in what we're talking about in the subject matter. And it, it kind of answers a little bit that question. With this phrase, this idea that I think of it like this, there's the not yet, but it's also now. Your relationship with God has those two elements. It's now and not yet. And we'll explain what we mean by that as we look through this. Now, in context of this, just understand that Hebrews was written, written to a bunch of first century believers, probably. Uh, some believe it might have been Jews. Uh, it may have been more than just the Jews, but it seems like it is because the topics have a very Jewish flavor to them, talking about you know, sacrifice and priests and things like that. Um, they're very likely people who are under severe persecution by the Romans. This is later in the first century. The church has already been separated from the synagogue and the Roman Empire said, you know, when it conquered a kingdom or an area, it said, uh, if you had a religion, we'll let you keep practicing that religion. So Judaism had been practiced for, uh, you know, a thousand or more years before Rome ever came into Israel. And so the Jews all over the Roman Empire were kind of grandfathered in. But the Christians were now seen as a new religion that had come after the Romans. And so the Romans began to start persecuting them. It's interesting that within about 300 years, those persecuted Christians would spiritually and emotionally take over the Roman Empire as the Roman Empire became Christian. That's just the power of God and his word. But they were under this persecution. They faced a lot of it. And by the way, they also faced a lot of it from the Jews because uh, some of the Jews feared that they would be equated with these Christians who were becoming less and less popular and the hatred of them was more and more extreme. And so they didn't want anything to do with them. So some of that persecution throughout the Roman Empire came from the Jews. But when we think about it, we find ourselves in a similar situation. We're not in a situation of there's out, uh, out and out persecution against Christians today, but we're seeing the rumbles of it. We're starting to see the rains dropping. It's beginning. And if something doesn't change in our culture, I'm afraid for my children and their children, if they should have any, that by they by the time they're my age, it very well may be that there is open and out and out persecution against the church. And so in that, when you face those kinds of sufferings, you ask the question, why God? And he has an answer that is both now, but also not yet. So let's think about this. We've been looking at Hebrews now for a few weeks. Chapter one and two is all about how Jesus is better than everything. And you say better than what? Well, everything. Uh, he talks about Jesus being uh, better than the prophets at uh, communicating the message of God. He's better than creation, than uh, creation is at revealing the character and nature of God. He's better at revealing God and his person than anything else. And a large part of chapter 1 and 2 focuses on these angels. And last week we saw maybe why that was true, because it was the angels that were there when the law was given and are very much associated with that. 
But we're going to see also this time that angels are seen as kind of uh, uh, rulers over parts of the earth. We saw that in the book of Daniel. And so angels were a big part of the culture in that time. And Jesus is just better than they are. Better at salvation. Better at being in charge. Angels should not be diminished in their importance. They are special characters of God, unique who do a, an important task many times of taking care of us, of revealing things to people, of uh, watching out for us. But ultimately, Jesus is better at all of that even. So we pick up on the topic of Jesus in chapter 2, verses 5 through 9. And if you have your Bibles and don't already, then turn to that. Uh, and if you would please, when you find Hebrews 2, 5 through 9, let's all stand as we read God's word together. As we're looking at this and as we're reading it, think about this. Do you see a journey that Jesus takes? It's not explicit, it's not overt, but I see it. That he begins in one place and then he's going to move to another place. And then he's going to return to a place and then one day he's going to return to that. And so we're going to see that kind of up-down movement of him. I'll explain what I mean by that in a moment. It says in verse 5, in the Christian Standard Bible, for he has not subjected to angels the world to come that we are talking about. But somewhere, someone somewhere has testified. What is man that you, are, that you remember him? Or the son of man that you care for him? You made him lower than the angels for a short time. You crowned him with glory and honor. And subjected everything under his feet. For in subjecting everything to him, he left nothing that is not subject to him. As it is, we do not yet see everything subjected to him, but we do see Jesus made lower than the angels for a short time. So that by God's grace, he might taste death, death for everyone. Crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death. Amen. You may be seated. I want us to start and look at verse 7. What does it say there? It says, you made him lower than the angels for a short time. Well, if he was made lower than the angels, what does that imply? He must have been higher than the angels before that. If someone is made lower, then they must have been higher. And so we look at that, it implies that. And so the first thing I want us to see in this journey that Jesus takes through our salvation began, at least it began in human history, with Jesus in a place of glory. Jesus began in a place of glory. Think about that. You know, when you uh, watch a, a TV show and uh, you think about Jesus in glory, like on his, his throne, um, when you watch a TV show, what do they often do? If it's an episodic show that's a fictional show and the storyline keeps getting carried from one thing to the next. Well, in one episode, what they'll do is they'll begin it by saying previously on The Equalizer or whatever TV show you like to watch. And don't you do that and you see that? Now, I used to do this. I would record everything on a DVR and I'd hit the skip buttons. I'd go through all that. I, said, I remember all that stuff. But as I get older, guess what I do? I think I might need to watch that because I don't remember what happened in the last episode. Do you do that? Is anybody else same way? I, I watch it now. I watch everything on, on streaming and so that's how we do it. But that previously, you know, we kind of remember. We, we, 
have to look back and think about what happened here. And we see that in this passage a little bit. We remember a little bit. And so let's go back and previously in the book of Hebrews, uh, look back in verse 10, in verse 10 of Hebrews. It says, and in the beginning, the Lord you established the earth and the heavens are the works of your hand. Remember that Jesus was present in creation. We also find outside the book of Hebrews, you don't have to turn there, but John 1, 3 will be up on the screen. It says, all things were created through him and apart from him, not one thing was created that has been created. And so we know this, that Jesus is God and part of the Trinity and God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit were all instrumental as one person separated, not separated, but but manifest in three different ways, we see him as the creator. Jesus was there in the beginning. So he was in that position of authority, uh, in this exalted position. He was the center of attention in heaven, right? I mean, all the angels would bow before him. Everybody uh, would see him. He was the glory of heaven. And so they worshiped him. We get glimpses of heaven throughout scripture. We can't fully see or understand it, but every glimpse of heaven that we get when Jesus was there in heaven and not here on earth, we see Jesus being a part of it, being praised. At least it's implied, if not explicitly and overtly shown. And so we see that he's in this position of glory. And in verse six through eight in this passage, it's a quotation from Psalm, probably one of the most quoted Psalms in the New Testament is Psalm 8. In fact, I think I read somewhere that it said, this is the most quoted Old Testament passage in the New Testament, Psalm chapter 8. It's the Psalm that begins, uh, you probably know this Psalm. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth, right? If I wanted to put Dennis on the spot, I'd say, come on up here and sing that, but he doesn't have to do that. But you know the song, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name. You know that song, right? That's the first line of this Psalm. And so it's a well-known psalm. But in verse 3 through 8, listen to Psalm chapter 8, verses 3 through 8. It says, When I observe your heavens, the works of your fingers, the moon, and the stars which you set in place, what is a human being that you remember him? A son of man that you look after him. You made him little less than God and crowned him with glory and honor. You made him ruler over the works of your hands and you put everything under his feet, all the sheep and oxen, as well as the animals in the wild, the birds of the sky and the fish of the sea that pass through the currents of the seas. You see, when that psalm was originally written, it was thought of as a creation song talking about the glory of creation, but how God in his majesty and also in his wisdom chose to put humanity as authority over creation. In fact, he did that with Adam and Eve in the garden. He said, uh, you know, you have mastery over it. You name all the animals and you take care of the earth and then be fruitful and multiply so that your offspring can do the same. But the New Testament authors took that same psalm And they changed the application of it a little bit and said the the top most important person that's ever lived truly fulfills this passage in Jesus, the person of Jesus Christ. Now, if you look at uh, Hebrews 2.7, everybody just look at your Bible, look at Hebrews 2.7 real quick there. And then listen to Psalm 8.5. You made him a little less than, are you looking at Hebrews 2.7? 
Listen again. You made him a little less than God and crowned him with glory and honor. But in Hebrews 2, 7, doesn't it say the angels? It's a little different there, isn't it? The psalm says God. Hebrews says the angels. Why is that? Well, I'm going to tell you about something you may or may not have heard of. Have you ever heard of the Septuagint? The Septuagint is a Greek translation of the whole of the Old Testament. And what happened is there's a legend, we don't know if it's true, but 70 scholars got together in Alexandria, Virginia and translated all by themselves independently of one another and they translated the Hebrew Old Testament into Greek. And when they got together, they looked at it and everybody went, whoa, it's all exactly the same. Now, if you've ever done any translation, you know, I had to take Greek class, I had to take Hebrew class. They forced us to translate things. I was never great at it. But translations often are very different depending on who does the translating. You can tell that when you just read the NASB or the NIV or the Holman Christian Standard Bible or the King James or the New King James. You see that. They're different. And so why was that significant? Is that true? It's kind of a legend. We don't know if it's true or not. But what's significant is by the time of Jesus... The church was speaking Greek and Aramaic. And when they read the Bible, they read the Septuagint. And the Septuagint says, you made him a little lower than the angels. Why was it the change? I don't know. Some people say, well, that means there's a mistake in the Bible. No, I don't think that's true. I just think that in the New Testament, they want this author used that translation, not the original, because in the New Testament, which by the way is also God breathed, he's the one who uh, put the words and the ideas into the thoughts of the writer. He put it there to say this, Jesus is a little lower than angels, but one day he's going to be above the angels. Because in order to say that the Messiah is less than the God, that would be uh, heresy because the Messiah is God. Jesus is God. The Hebrew Bible was talking about humanity, people. Hebrews is talking about Jesus. He can't be less than God because he is God. Does that make sense? I hope that explains it to you. If it doesn't, hit me up afterwards and I'll try another chance and go for it. But the most important thing that we see here is that Jesus took a step out of heaven, but he began in a place of glory. He began on the throne in a seat of glory. And he left his throne and came to this earth for an important purpose. One of those purposes, among many, was to show us his love. Now he also did it to die for our sins because we couldn't. We would have been destroyed if we had to die for our own sins. He did it in order to teach us lessons about how to live a Christian life after he would go back to heaven and send his Holy Spirit. He knew we needed these lessons, so he had, you know, taught us lessons like, uh, you know, forgive people and love people and here's how you should pray and, you know, make sure you give a tithe and all these things. But what's really important for us to see is Jesus wanted us to know that God loves you. You know, aside from everything else you have to look at when you think about the Bible and scripture and theology and teaching, that's the heart of it all, isn't it? God really loves you. He loves you so much that he sent his one and only son to die for you. He left heaven because he loves you that much. And he did so. And in doing so, he became slightly lower than the angels for a little while. 
that little while in comparison to all of eternity, those 30 plus, maybe 33-ish kind of years, that's a little while when you count the thousands of years that we've had of human history. You know, we see this in our own culture. For example, Barb in Sunday school was talking about hurricanes, you know, and we have natural disasters. And I can remember when uh, our last president went to visit in Florida, there were hurricanes there. And you saw him with people from disaster relief, from Southern Baptist disaster relief. I don't know if you can see any in that picture, but I remember seeing him with a yellow hat on. If you ever see yellow hats with disaster, you know those are Southern Baptists doing the work. A second to only, or third only to the uh, American Red Cross and the Salvation Army, Southern Baptists are the largest disaster relief organization in the world. And you and I are part of that. And by the way, every time you give a little offering on Sunday morning, a tiny bit of that goes to that. Now, in the fall and September, we give a larger offering because uh, our, our state disaster relief is a big part of the ministry of North Carolina Baptists. But the president goes to these places. And, you know, I, if there's a great, huge disaster this year, I wouldn't be at all surprised if Joe Biden would show up. This isn't a political thing. They all did it, and they all will do it, right? Why? Why is that necessary? Why do they feel like it's important, especially when you consider this? You know, for the president to visit that area, he's got to uh, take up a lot of resources like local police officers and sheriff's deputies. Uh, there's just a, a lot of thing. There's shutting down portions of the region in order for his motorcade to get from the airport to wherever the disaster is. It takes a lot of effort. But why do they do it? And why do they continue to do it? Because they want the country to know, I care. I actually think it's a good thing. I think it's something they ought to do. It shows I care. It kind of encourages the people. And when you interview people after they've been there, they say, it was so encouraging to see the president here and helping us out a little bit. So I remember some of those pictures, you know, and some of the video of him throwing uh, big old things of uh, toilet paper into people's cars. I remember that, him pitching one in. That was just kind of funny to, to see. And, you know, Obama did it and Bush did it and Clinton did it. They all did it. And it's kind of like this. Jesus wants you to know he loves us. But far more than this, it's not a photo op for Jesus. It's a sincere, real, important love because he had to come in order for us to be saved. You know, the president doesn't have to go to a disaster relief area for people to have their lives taken care of. But Jesus had to come. He had to be here because without him, we would still be in a disaster and have no hope. Too many people still are in a disaster because they've not trusted Jesus, the one who fixed it, who cleaned it up, who took care of our sin. But when he was done, remember he was in a place of glory and honor. And then Jesus, the second place that he went to, Jesus became a human being in order to benefit us human beings. He left heaven and became one of us. Isn't that a beautiful thing? Just the idea of that. So again, in verse 7, when it says it made him lower than the angels for a short term. Now look at verse 9 of Hebrews. It says, but we do see Jesus made lower than the angels for a short time so that by God's grace, he might taste death for everyone crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death. Now, when you see that part that in, in the CSB, you'll notice that there's a line after Jesus and a line right before crowned. 
What that shows is that's kind of like a parenthesis. You know, all of that sentence describes Jesus. We see Jesus. Oh, who is this Jesus? Tell me more about him. Well, he was made lower than the angels for a short time so that by God's grace, he might taste death for everyone. Oh, okay. Now tell me more about this. So you almost could read it, but we see Jesus crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death. But then you get that little parenthesis to show us a little more about Jesus. And so understand this, there was a purpose for why he came. As I said already, there were a number of purposes. I remember when my Packers won the Super Bowl, and uh, in that year, one of the players who's about to be named to the Hall of Fame was Charles Woodson. And he got the Packers doing something. When they would go on a road trip, and they would score a touchdown, or they'd get an interception, instead of having these big old celebrations and spiking balls and getting in the face of the opponent, all they did was they'd get together, and they would just shake hands like that. They just would... Simply shake hands. And people then asked Charles, why do you just shake hands like that? What, what's going on? Pretty soon the whole team was doing it, only on the road trips. <laughs> he said, well, one, we want our opponents to know that we see beating them as just ordinary. That's just who we are. And I liked that. But also, he said, when we come out to these places, we're just on a road trip. You see, players often would go in the night before the game, they'd go partying and getting wild and doing crazy stuff. And he, as the leader of the team, said, listen, we don't need to be doing that. We're here for a purpose. We want to win this game so that we can get to the playoffs. And then when they got to the playoffs, he said, we want to win this playoff game so we can get to the Super Bowl. And the night before the Super Bowl, they said, look, everybody, we've got a business to take care of. And so it was just a business trip. Well, I say all that to say, you know, Jesus came and it was a business trip. He had a purpose. He had a reason for coming. And why did he come? Well, parts of those reasons include, number one, he needed to create a church so that when he would leave and send his Holy Spirit, we would have a place where we could come together. We could learn from one another, encourage each other, support one another, uh, work together to, to share the gospel with the whole world. He said uh, he came to teach disciples, to make disciples. And that's what we're supposed to do now, is to take that teaching and teach it and go and make disciples of other people. Verse 9, it says that he would taste death for everyone. That's an interesting term, to taste death. Have you ever thought about that for a second? You know, I don't think that death would probably taste very sweet. But to Jesus, he understood why. Because every person who trusted in him for forgiveness of their sins would have eternal life because he tasted death. Jesus began in a place of glory, deserved glory, but by his choice, he humbled himself and became like one of us in order to benefit all of us, all of us who would accept him. But now look at Hebrews chapter two, again, verse six. He says, but when someone somewhere, by the way, I don't think the Hebrew author is saying, boy, I just don't remember who this was or when they said this. No, he's being a little bit sarcastic, you know. When you make a, a quote that's really well known, sometimes people do that. Oh, you know, I, I once heard someone say, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Yeah, everybody knows who you're talking about. At least all believers do. You're talking about Jesus. You do that in order to, it's kind of like saying, hey, this is so important that I can say, I don't even have to tell you who the name of the people are. 
Because everybody knew Psalm chapter 8. And again, this was a quotation from that most important, not most, but one of the most important of Psalms. Psalm chapter 8, which, which gets quoted over and over again in the New Testament. He says, but someone somewhere has testified, what is man that you remember him? Or the son of man that you care for him? You made him lower than the angels for a short time. You crowned him with glory and honor. Now look at verse 9. But we also see Jesus made lower than the angels for a short time so that by God's grace he might taste death for everyone. Now listen to this. Crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death. You see, twice the author quotes this passage from Psalms. When you see repetition in the Bible, it's because it's important. He's emphasizing it. You were crowned with glory and honor in verse 7. In verse 9, you were crowned with glory and honor because you suffered death. And so we see this movement of Jesus. He began in a place of glory and honor in heaven. He came and stooped down to our level in order to benefit us. And then Jesus returned to heaven in glory and honor. On the day of his ascension, it was his homecoming back to heaven. Boy, it sure would be interesting to see what it was like when that happened. <laughs> Can you imagine all the praise and glory? You know, I, I bet no, no sports team has ever seen a victory celebration like Jesus saw in heaven when he returned. Harry Hines uh, from Troy, New York, described a trip that he had to Washington, D.C. He went to view the changing of the guard at the tomb of the unknown soldier while he was there for other reasons. He said he had seen this several times on different trips, but on this particular day, something different happened that he had never seen before. You see, on that day, the commanding officer of the guard that guards the tomb of the unknown soldier asked everyone to stop, be quiet, and remain in their spots for a special and important ceremony. At that point, a man named Sergeant Jennings, who was one of the guards, had just completed 27 months of service at the tomb, and he was now transferring to another billet. And so a guard escorted, another guard escorted Sergeant Jennings' family to a special place of honor nearby the tomb. And then the CO, in a very ceremonial way, handed him four roses. Sergeant Jennings approached the tomb and first knelt at the spot of the display that commemorates World War I. And he placed the tomb placed, uh, at that spot, one of the roses. He got up, he moved slightly, and knelt at the place where World War II is commemorated. He did the same for the Korean War and the Vietnam War. He was honoring those men who died, which is what that tomb honors. Each time kneeling, each time placing a rose, as a commemoration. And each time he stood and saluted solemnly. After this, he returned to the CO and stood before him. And he very carefully and again, very ceremoniously removed his white gloves, finger by finger, taking, putting them both together and presenting them to his CO. He would no longer need them since he was no longer guarding the tomb of the unknown soldier. Mr. Hines, who was one of the observers, said that there were a lot of people there today on that day with tears in their eyes as they saw that moving tribute. And the writer, uh, Mr. Hines, he said he described this and he said that as he was doing so, he was remembering and thinking about Jesus. 
when Jesus returned to heaven. He had completed the work. And instead of being very solemn and very quiet, he said, I bet that it was very loud and very celebratory. See, the big difference is Jesus was returning in victory after bringing life to people. This man was ending his time in commemorating the death of people. And what's so important, what's so important for us to remember is that Jesus came for a purpose and that purpose was to taste death for us. And because of that, he deserves the praise of heaven. But far more, he deserves the praise of all of us because the people in heaven, those angels and all the beings that are there, they didn't experience the salvation that you and I experienced when we had asked Jesus into our heart. In Hebrews chapter 2, verse 3, the passage before this one, it says, he brought about a great salvation. I think that's an understatement. A great salvation. The Greek word there is mega. I remember when we were kids, everything was mega. You know, we talked about things being a mega this, a megaton, a mega load, whatever. It was great, amazing, incredible. Now he's seated at the right hand of God until God does something for him. Because if you look back at verse 13, what does it say in Hebrews 1, 13? It says that Jesus is there seated at the throne until God makes his enemies his footstool. You see, what's happening is in our era of history, he's doing that. We are a part of the battle to defeat the enemy and to win lives and souls into the kingdom of God. Hebrews 2.8, which we've kind of been skipping around as we've been reading this. It says in the second half of Hebrews 2b, for in subjecting everything to him, he left nothing that is not subject to him. As it is, we do not yet see everything subjected to him. This is the now but not yet part of this passage. You see, everything is now subjected to him, but we won't really fully see it until the end. You know, I kind of look at this and and, uh, you know, as I see it, I, I, I have, I don't know, almost this image of a couple of the archangels, you know, Michael and uh, Gabriel, maybe. And they're sitting up there in heaven and uh, they're doing a bit of a, uh, an inventory of everything that exists. And one of them says to the other, how about the fish? Yep. Yep. The fish they're, they're under him. He's got the authority over the fish. Okay, good. Well, what about children? Yep, he's, he's in authority over children. He, the children are subjected to Jesus. Cool. You know, and he just goes A, B, C. Okay, let's see, see ch children, chickens, chieftains. Yes, children, children. All of them are under his authority. Everything. How about zoo animals as they get all the way to the end of the alphabet? Yes, everything. It's as if they're kind of looking for something. Is there anything that's not under his authority? And as they go through the list, they can't find one thing because everything is under Christ's authority. And you know what? That makes him better. Better than the angels. You see, in a Jewish mind, they used to believe that angels had authority over different parts of the earth. And Daniel, the book of Daniel, as we studied it, uh, you know, it kind of implies that as well. We see that in the book of Daniel. Uh, there was an angel who was over Rome and one over Babylon and one over Jerusalem in that book. And we saw that there. But when Jesus Christ returned, 
he's no longer lower than the angels. He's above them. Even the angels who had authority over these cities are below Christ in power and authority. And that's what we see. That he did it all. He did it all for us. And now we give him all because of what he has done for us. And right now he's just up there preparing the, play, the way. He's getting it ready. You guys get things ready. You know, you have a visitor coming over and you clean a little bit deeper when someone's coming to visit. I know when, when Barb's parents are coming, we work a little harder to get the house clean when that's taking place. Uh, when other visitors are coming, we know we get it a little bit cleaner because of that. And Jesus said that to his disciples in John 14, 3. He said, if I go away and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself so that where I am, you may be also. See, Jesus started in a place of glory and honor in heaven. But he chose to leave that place and become like one of us in order to benefit all of us. And then he returned to that place of glory with a great victory celebration. But you know what's coming? You know what we're looking forward to one day? It's on the horizon. Who knows? It feels like it might be sooner than later, but you never know the day or the hour. Nobody knows. It could be today, tomorrow, or in 2,000 years. Jesus will return to redeem all of us to our new heavenly home. And what a day that will be. When my Jesus I shall see, and I look upon his face, the one who saved me by his grace, when he takes me by the hand and he leads me through the promised land, what a day, glorious day that will be. You've been listening to Sermons at High Peak. I'm Dr. Kevin Purcell, pastor of High Peak Baptist Church. Thanks for joining us. If you heard something that inspired you, challenged you, or encouraged you, please let me know. You can reach me at pastor at highpeakchurch.com. We're also on Facebook at High Peak Church. Thanks for listening.